Folks, take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, and we turn to a very important theme in Deuteronomy and in the Bible. And we're going to see that it has to do with our fear. Since we were little kids, our daddies told us, don't be afraid of anybody. I remember uh, having to teach one of my children uh, how to defend himself and not to be afraid. And in fact, the Bible itself, if you go through the Bible, you'll find, if you just take out your concordance, look up the word fear, and look how many times we're told, do not fear. I think it gets up around 60 times in the Bible, you know, including uh, when the angel comes to, to Joseph and Mary. Do not fear, do not fear. Uh, so we're, we're told in the Bible not to fear men, not even to fear angels. Uh, we're told by Jesus not even to fear the devil. And Jesus admits he can, he can kill you, but don't be afraid of him. So the Bible gives us constant advice, counsel about not being afraid. And so often in our business dealings, our personal relationships, financial decisions, all kinds of decisions that we're making, relationships that we have, a lot of the negative aspects of that relationship comes through our own fear. We overreact because of fear. Uh, we we uh, respond negatively because we're afraid. We don't take advantage of an opportunity because of fear. Uh, fear is a curse. Uh, the Bible says that it is the righteous who will be as bold as a lion. The wicked will run at the rustling of a leaf. So we are taught in the Bible to be courageous men, not to be afraid with one exception, and that is that we're to fear God, and we're actually to cultivate that fear. As a matter of fact, the key to not fearing anything else, the key to being a courageous man is to fear God at the very core of your being. And what we're going to see in Deuteronomy, it's mentioned a number of times in Deuteronomy, as we'll see, but especially in this context, when we're dealing with our obedience to his commandments. We dealt with that last time. This is at the heart of, of God's love language. You want to love God? Keep his commandments. That means you study those commandments. You diligently investigate them and see what they mean. You slice them and dice them so that you can take those commandments and apply them to your marriage, to your dating relationship, to your workplace, to your church life. You take those commandments and you apply them rigorously but you do it in the fear of the Lord. There's, a, there's this huge motive behind your obedience, and it is a fear of the Lord. Now, we're going to see that actually uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ comes out of the fear of the Lord. Now, Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 11 that the Messiah who was to come will delight himself in the fear of the Lord. So Jesus himself is a perfect example, although he, he is God incarnate. He delighted himself in the fear of the Lord. But we're going to see that even his ministry to us grows out of our fear of the Lord. We'll see that in just a few moments. So that this is deep stuff that the Bible gives us here. It's a, it's a profound theme. And what I have noticed among people who have not carefully studied their Bibles that they actually think the fear of the Lord is a, reg, re, uh, a relatively negative thing. 
that people who have confidence in their salvation should not be afraid of the Lord. And I don't know where that rumor got started. (laughs) But I've noticed a lot of people who think that that's rather primitive, that it's emotionally immature, uh, that we would, along with our love for the Lord, we would fear Him. And what I want us to see clearly this morning is, no, that that fear, uh, sometimes we don't fear Him enough. Not sometimes, all the time. We do not fear Him enough. And so if we're going to grow in our relationship with Him, we're going to grow in our fear of the Lord. Now let's begin with verse 22. We're going to read through chapter 6, verse 3. And what we're going to see is that this fear of the Lord grows up in the context of God's covenant with us. And the way he, uh, what He does when He makes covenant with us, of course, it, it is to get near to us. The whole idea of being in a saving relationship with God or to have a covenant with Him is to be near to Him. That's what causes the fear. If He didn't let us close to Him, we wouldn't be afraid at all. We wouldn't see any evidences of His greatness. We wouldn't have to sing this hymn, How Great Thou Art, because we wouldn't know how great He is. But He lets us see. And that's what creates the fear. And then you'll see in this text how He takes our fear and deals with it. He tells us to keep fearing, but He provides for a, a, a way for us not to be terrified and to pull away from Him. Let's see what He does in this covenant. Because you've got a problem. You want to get close to God, but if you get too close, you turn into toast. <laughs> so you, how, how are we going to solve this problem? Look what, look what God does. Uh, verse 22. These words the Lord spoke. This is chapter 5, verse 22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. This is Moses speaking. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of, the, of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a mind as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents, but you stand here by me and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them that they may do them in the land that I'm giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. So notice in verse 32, Moses, the, the quotation from God ceased and Moses begins to speak for himself. Now look at 6.1. Moses still speaking. 
Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of our fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Amen. Okay, let's look first of all at just verse 22. And notice this. God has given His covenant in great glory. God has given His covenant in great glory. If you'll look uh, anywhere that He gives His covenant or that He speaks, usually the mountains will shake, the the trees will rattle, the wind will blow. Uh, it gets your attention. Uh, when God speaks, when God makes covenant, dramatic things happen. And uh, you'll notice, first of all, that he speaks. And his voice is heard uh, in verse 22. He says, these words of the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain. So he's talking, Moses is referring now to uh 38 years ago when they were at Mount Sinai. And he's reminding them of what happened to their fathers. And notice, even if he's speaking to young people, he says, you were there. So when you're speaking to the church, you're speaking to a group that is, that is ancient. And so we were at Mount Horeb too. Uh, we were at the empty tomb. We heard the Great Commission because our fathers and our mothers were there. So he's speaking to them. You remember what happened at Mount Horeb. God spoke. And that is exactly what God does. And when he speaks, uh, it, it moves mountains. It moved Mount Sinai. I don't know if you've been to Mount Sinai. I got up at 3 o'clock in the morning one time, or no, I guess I got up at 1 o'clock in the morning and hiked Mount Sinai from 2 to 5, and you get there by sunrise. And I'm telling you what, that's a big mountain. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, I think it's just granite. It's just a huge thing. And uh, when God spoke and made that thing rattle, uh, believe me, that gets your attention. Um, it's, it's an enormous piece of real estate. So when God spoke, things happened. And this is the reason that the writer of Hebrews, you notice I make reference to Hebrews 1 here. This is exactly what happened when Jesus came. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at various times in many ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. So once again, when God speaks the new covenant, what happens? Mount Sinai doesn't shake. No, a baby is born in a manger. God of God, light of light. And uh, He speaks forth the truth. And it's more momentous than when Mount Sinai shook and, God, and, and the people heard God's voice. Uh, and you'll notice, for example, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, that when God spoke, or when Jesus Christ spoke the Sermon on the Mount, the people were amazed. Why? Because He spoke as one who had authority, not as their regular teachers, not as their scribes, it says. So Jesus spoke with this, it was a tenderness of voice, but there was a deep authority. The people could all recognize it. And frankly, if you've become a believer, you have heard the Bible as God's voice in the same way that it goes right down to the very core of your being. So uh, you find that often in the, the gospel accounts when they speak of Jesus' teaching. He spoke as one who had authority. Or, or the text that I cited there 
John chapter 7, you remember that the, the, uh, <clears throat> the Pharisees wanted Jesus arrested. The guards came back and said, we couldn't arrest him. Nobody's ever spoken like that man. Uh, even the unbelieving Roman guards could tell there was an authority, there was a, a wisdom, there was a depth uh, to that voice. And that is the way that God speaks. And these people actually heard the voice and it scared the bejabbers out of them. So God, when He makes His covenant with us, He speaks. It is His voice that makes the covenant. It's His voice that speaks salvation. Uh, in fact, Jesus Christ Himself is called the Word made flesh. It's the speaking of God becoming flesh, if you will. So He spoke His Word. And secondly, you notice He displayed His glory when He gave His covenant. And He does it through Christ as well. Uh, Hebrews 12, 18 through 29 speaks of this uh, moment at Sinai when the mountain was shaking with smoke. And the writer of Hebrews says, look, if the people listened because they saw that, how much more must we listen having beheld Jesus Christ? The moment of Christ in the new covenant is even a greater uh, uh, terror, if you will, an act of God than was Mount Sinai itself. And then, furthermore, I've noticed, uh, noticed several texts there from John. John 5 and John 10, John 14, John 15. Jesus is regularly saying, isn't he, that if you don't believe me because of what I say, believe me because of my works. So the miraculous works of Jesus, once again, are the great works of God in establishing his covenant with his people. He did that at Sinai. He did that in Palestine with Jesus. And then, of course, in John chapter 12, that last text I mentioned there, Jesus himself says that the hour has come for me to be glorified. So what is the great glory? This is the irony of the new covenant. It is that he was lifted up on the cross naked uh, to die. That was the great sign uh, along with the resurrection that occurred three days later. So when God gives his covenant, he speaks and acts. And it is in such a way that uh, just as with the guards at the tomb of Jesus, it's terrifying when God acts. It's, it's powerful. Um, so God is making it clear that he is present, he is speaking. But notice in all of this in verse 22, they never saw his form. You can see the smoke. You can see the fire, the clouds. You can feel the mountain shake, but you never see the form of God. Why? Because God is invisible. Uh, so then they were reminded of that. Don't create a graven image because God is invisible. You never saw his form, but you knew he was there. Now, secondly, uh, here at the heart of the text, notice that God not only has given his covenant in great glory, but he has given his faithful covenant mediator. Now, let's see why the people asked for a mediator. In verses 23 through 26, you'll notice that God's nearness inspires reverent fear. If you get close to God, you will fear Him. The people even say, if we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fires we have and has still lived? Everybody recognized that if you see God with your eyes, you will die. If you get that close to him. Uh, that's the reason that Isaiah said, I am undone. I'm coming apart at the seams, literally, in Isaiah 6. He says, why? Because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. 
He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king. So I'm a sinner and I've seen the Holy One. I'm going to die. I'm undone. I'm disintegrating. That was Isaiah's response. And of course, Peter uh, in Luke uh, chapter uh, 5 says, Depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. So whenever we behold the Holy One, uh, we are fearful. You'll see it all throughout the Gospels as well. When the angel appeared and the glory shone all about the shepherds, we were told the shepherds were sore afraid. You want to know what sore afraid is? That means really afraid. Now, they were really afraid. In Matthew 17, with the transfiguration, uh, they were terrified. Mark 16, 8, after the resurrection, they were terrified. Revelation 1, 17, when John sees the Lord as he is, high and lifted up in all of his glory, described there for us in Revelation chapter 1, he fell down as though dead. So nearness inspires reverent fear. Some guys like to say, oh, I'm not afraid of anything. You know, I'm not. Yeah, you are. Everybody's afraid of something. The question is, what are you going to fear? It's a choice between either fearing God or fearing man. Uh, and you won't fear both. You only fear one. Everybody fears something. I remember the story of a, of a, a woman who got on the uh, elevator and there was a man with two Doberman pincers. And they were just kind of glaring at her and she got on uh, sort of terrified with her purse and her mink stole on and and the man with the Doberman said, sit. And she sat right down on the elevator. <laughs> Everybody's afraid of something, uh, <laughs> even though we don't want to admit it. But God's nearness inspires reverent fear. And then look at verse 27. B, our reverent fear seeks a mediator. Look at what they say to Moses in verse 27. Moses, you go near and you hear all that the Lord our God will say. And then Moses then you can speak to us what the Lord said and we'll hear it and we'll do it. The whole idea of a mediator comes from the people who get close to God and are fearful of Him. And they say, we need a representative whom God has in some way qualified to come near Him. And Moses, you seem to be it. So we're just going to stand down here uh, a, a safe distance from the foot of the mountain and you hike up there and you talk to God. <laughs> and uh, we're afraid of all that smoke and fire and earthquakes and all the rest uh, and all the thunder and lightning. You go up there and talk to him. And that's where the idea of a mediator comes from. It comes from the people. Now, we'll see that God was pleased with it. But Moses then takes up the role of what we call me a covenant mediator. Now, gentlemen, we all need a covenant mediator. If you are a sinner, you need somebody to go represent you. Because you do not want, as these people were quite right in saying, you do not want a sinner who has not been granted permission to come into the presence of a holy God. And so we need a mediator. Now, when you, you turn with me just for a moment, leave your finger there, and turn over to Deuteronomy 18, and see that Moses brings this whole episode up again. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, we have this remarkable text where Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, 
They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. So here Moses calls back to this instance once again and says, I've got some really good news for you. You've used me as mediator, but one day God's going to raise up from among you guys a, a mediator who will speak for him. And, of course, we know who that is. Jesus Christ is covenant mediator. He's the one that goes up the mountain for us, which he did literally go up a couple of three mountains for us. And he stands in our place, and he perfectly represents us. He's the perfect representation of humanity. No sin. He's uh, better than Adam. The second Adam is better than the first Adam. And Jesus Christ completely fills that role as mediator. As a matter of fact, he does even better than that. Uh, He, we're told in the book of Hebrews, is a better mediator than Moses. Moses died because of his own disobedience, didn't get to go in the promised land. On the other hand, Jesus was not only Moses, but Joshua too. And he goes into the promised land. He's gone into the promised land ahead of us as our covenant mediator, there to prepare a place for us uh, in the new holy land. Uh, He's the perfect mediator that never fails us, never disappoints us. And he is the one who shields us from being destroyed by the wrath of God and the holiness of God. So Christ has perfectly fulfilled this role as mediator. And in, in, in verses 28 through 31, you see that God is pleased. God is pleased with their request. God is pleased to grant their request. He says, I have heard these people are right. And right in a couple of instances. First of all, he commends our motive. And he even says, oh, that they had such a mind as this always to fear me. So this is where I said at the beginning, the very ministry of Christ comes from the fear of God. It's our fear of Him, our need of a mediator, and God sends His Son as mediator. And you'll find in Isaiah and Jeremiah, often the Lord is saying, oh, that they would, oh, that they would, oh, that they would. It's like Jesus over Jerusalem. Oh, that you had listened. Uh, So God is saying that they may fear me always. Now, let's take a little moment here and look at what, is meant by this fear. Just take a little theological sidebar here, a practical sidebar on the fear of God. There are over 150 references to the fear of God in the Bible. Over 150 references to the fear of God in the Bible, 14 of them in Deuteronomy. So this is a major theme that we would fear God, both in the Bible and especially in Deuteronomy. So if we're talking about having an intimate relationship with God in the covenant, if we're talking about how we respond to His commandments, there must be the fear of God. We must learn to fear Him. And we must teach succeeding generations to fear Him. Let me read on in my outline here. The fear of God is the appropriate human reaction to the revelation of God. So the fear of God is simply how we should react when He reveals Himself. How great thou art, we sang, because God has revealed his greatness. For he is great and glorious and awesome in both his being and his works. Our fear of God consists of these three things. Our amazement. So we cultivate a sense of wonder and awe and amazement 
at his great glory in his being, that is who he is, and in what he has done. Our adoration, in other words, we are, uh, the fear of God consists of our actually adoring him for his awesome being and works. So our amazement, our adoration, and our then submission to what he says. So the fear of God consists of amazement, adoration, and submission. It does not consist of slavish, untrusting, or begrudging fear. Can you think of a really good example of that? Think of the parable that Jesus told about the, the five talents, the two talents, and the one talent. You remember he gave a man five talents. He went and invested it. When Jesus came, when the master comes back, he has ten talents because he's been investing his five talents. And he gives it over to the master. And the master says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of the Lord. The man with two talents, he does the same thing. He has only 40% of what the wealthy man had, but he goes and does the same thing with what he has. And Jesus, or rather the master, gives it the identical words. Well done, thou good and faithful service, a servant. Enter into the, uh, the uh, pleasure of the Lord, the light of the Lord. So it's the same commendation, no matter how much money you have, how many, how many talents you have, how, much, uh, how many resources you have, how much influence you have. It doesn't matter at all. What matters is you take what you have and you use it for the master's pleasure and for his kingdom. Then you remember the man with one talent. He took his talent and hid it. And why? Because I knew you were a hard master who reaps where you did not sow. So the reason he didn't invest his talent because he didn't trust the master. He thought the master was simply using him and abusing him. And therefore... He just went and hit it. And the master said, well, at least you could have put it in the bank and gotten interest on it. And throws him in to perdition because the man didn't trust the master. Well, here's the point. Our fear is not an untrusting, begrudging fear of the Lord. Now, we delight ourselves in the fear of the Lord. If you'd like to read, a, uh, I think, a pretty good book on this, uh, 12 or 13 years ago, Jerry Bridges uh, wrote The Joy of Fearing God. It's a good little book, The Joy of Fearing God. We delight ourselves in the fear of the Lord. Why? That's our daddy. He's good. My daddy's bigger than your daddy. My daddy can beat up your daddy. Uh, our daddy is awesome. He's the king. And we delight ourselves that our papa is the ruler of the universe, and he is terrifying. <laughs> and he's protecting us. He's using all that power all that might, all of his glory to protect us and get us his son's home. So we delight ourselves. It's not begrudging. Now, on the other hand, it's not overly intimate. Uh, and call him our palsy-walsy uh, because he's a great king. He's the Lord. So we're not overly familiar with him. We're not disrespectful. But being a prince as we are, as the sons of God, we, we teach the entire world... Uh, how to revere our Father. And for that reason, when, when we're out and about, of course, we show Him that respect because we want every sentient being in the universe to show Him that respect. And that's the reason that we both love Him and are intimate with Him, and we also revere Him and fear Him as the living God. But it's not slavish. We're not like slaves out in the field. We are sons, and we fear Him. 
It's not slavish. It's not untrusting. It's not begrudging fear. The fear of God enables us to enjoy God and life itself because, number one, it is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. You can't really think anything through properly without the fear of the Lord. When God describes the unbelievers in the Psalms, when, and, and Paul picks up this language in, in Romans chapter 3, they have no fear of God in their eyes. There's no fear of God among them. And therefore, there's no real knowledge and wisdom. They may have a collection of facts, but they can't organize those facts in a realistic uh, understanding of what's really going on because you, if you don't start with God at the top, nothing else is going to consistently make sense. So the fear of God is the actual beginning of all knowledge and wisdom. Secondly, the Proverbs teach us that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. That is, all of life flows out of our fear of the Lord. That's what the Bible's teaching us. Now, let's look at several aspects of life that flow out of our fear. These all begin with W, so they're easy to remember. First of all, our walk. In Exodus 20, right after the giving of the Ten Commandments, uh, Moses uh, says to them that their fear will help protect them from sin. So by a deep reverence and fear of the Lord, we are protected in our daily walk. You'll, you'll find that the apostles pick this up. Paul picks it up in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Peter picks it up in 1 Peter 2.17, that we're to walk in the fear of the Lord. In Acts chapter 9, Luke tells us that the church was walking in the fear of the Lord and they multiplied greatly. When the church really fears the Lord, they tend to grow in, in, as we look in the book of Acts. And in uh, Romans 3.18, of course, you have the statement there uh, that Paul makes, uh, quoting the Psalms, that, that the unbeliever has no fear uh, of God. John Calvin said, All wickedness flows from a disregard for God. Since the fear of God is the bridle by which our wickedness is held in check, its removal frees us to indulge in every kind of licentious conduct. So, once again, the fear of God protects us. He's awesome. He punishes sin, so on. Secondly, notice our work. It is a fountain of life for work in in several respects. Uh, first of all, in Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 3, uh, you see that we should, even if we're slaves, we work for our masters in the fear of the Lord. We don't obey our masters because we're afraid he's going to beat us or in our context. We don't work for our master because we're afraid he's going to fire us. Rather, we work for our master because we're working as unto the Lord. We fear the Lord in our work. That's the reason that we don't steal from the company. It's the reason that we don't lie. It's the reason that we don't play political games that bring other people down so that we can go up. We're living in the fear of the Lord. We're handling all of our business affairs right before his face. And we worship him and adore him. We're amazed by him. And then uh, Proverbs uh, says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. So it's better in our work not to be making as much. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than to have a lot and be dumb like an ox. 
So our work is motivated. The way that we work in particular is motivated by the fear of the Lord. Notice thirdly that it involves our witness. The fear of the Lord is the basis of our witness. Now, uh, obviously, when we share Christ with other people or if we invite them to a Bible study or invite them to church or give them something to read that we think will help them uh, as part of our witness, we're motivated by the love of God and by gratitude. But there are two primary motives uh, in the Christian life and in the Christian witness. One is gratitude and the other is reverence. One is love and the other is fear. And they go together. It's a loving fear or a reverent love. And that's true in, in our witness. You'll find it with Ezekiel. you find it with Isaiah. Isaiah says, I'm undone. And then the Lord forgives his sin. And then he says, who will go for, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. You find the same thing with, with Peter in Luke chapter 5. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Paul makes it very clear in that whole text in 2 Corinthians 5 that those two motives are at play because Paul says that we share these things in the fear of God. So woe be to me if I do not share the gospel. I am under orders and my, the one who has commanded me is an awesome king and I revere him. And that's not only a legitimate motive, it's a necessary motive. We are always witnessing under the fear of the Lord. Then fourthly, certainly our worship. And probably there, there's so many places in the Bible where you can see this, but one of the more famous ones would be in Malachi chapter 1 when the people have returned from exile and they're still in a mess, even having been punished in exile. They come back and Malachi has a few things to say to them and his first complaint is on worship. And what does he say? This is Malachi 1.6, page uh, 1774, if you're interested. Uh, Malachi says, or God says through Malachi, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. And you say, how have we despised your name? Well, here's how. By offering polluted food upon my altar, bringing blemished animals. So not offering what God has commanded. So you can see in your worship, whether it's your singing, giving 10% of your income, your attendance before Him and listening to His word, responding with all your heart, you're doing it in the fear of the Lord. When we don't do those things, the Lord says, why are you holding me in contempt? How are we holding you in contempt? Well, I said bring the tithes in the storehouse, and you're not. Oh, well, that's a, well, I'm doing this, that, and the other. Hang on just a minute. I'm the living God. Do you revere me or do you not? And he says, if you do not obey my word, you do, not hold, you do hold me in contempt because you don't honor me or fear me. So you can see that even in worship, uh, we sing this song, How Great Thou Art. That's the reason we sing it, because He is great. And our minds have been open to it to see that He's great. And in worship, uh, let me take a little side road on a side road here. Uh, what's happening in worship is you have uh, men and women, boys and girls, who are made in the image of God. And they are able to think. They are sentient beings. So that they can look at something and draw theological inferences from it 
and thereby know who, something about who God is. For example, we can look at creation, and unless we are intentionally, uh, as Paul says, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, we look at the creation and infer God. Paul says the only reason you would not infer God is that you're suppressing the truth in wickedness. So by our natural abilities that he has given us, we look at the creation and we infer God. Dogs do not look at the creation and infer God. They look at the creation and infer a meal <laughs> somewhere, you know, an animal to kill to eat or something like that. But they don't think about God. You do. Why? You're made in God's image. And you are given the ability and therefore the responsibility to make these inferences. So you can hear the gospel and believe and put your trust in the living God. Cats can't do that. They act like they can, but they can't. Uh, so you are the ones who observe creation and you, you observe the plan of redemption and you gather in together in your assemblies on the Lord's day and you give Him praise for who He is and what He has done. There's no other being in the universe who can do that. The stars can't do it. The moon can't do it. The, the animals can't do it. The fish of the sea, the birds of the air. Nobody can do it. But those two-legged people that He made in His own image, and that's our highest purpose is to make these observations and to sing the songs of Zion to His face. It all comes out of our fear of Him, our amazement at all that He's done. And then lastly, I couldn't help but add the wives. <laughs> you could take this one home, boys. That, you know, the, Solomon says in Proverbs 31 that charm is, is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So she may be beautiful. She may be a southern lady. She may be very, very charming, but all that's passing away. She's going to get old and wrinkly, and she's going to end up just like all the rest of us right before she goes home. She's not going to be all that attractive. But here's what's really attractive for eternity, a woman who fears the Lord. And you would be very wise if you're a single man if you would look for a woman who fears the Lord. It's the greatest blessing you can have in marriage is a woman who fears the Lord. If you're already married, you can encourage her in the fear of the Lord by, first of all, fearing Him yourself. And you can, you can commend her for her fear of the Lord. And I couldn't help but add the text, Ephesians 5.21. I want you to turn there with me and look at that for just a moment. This has to do with submission, and I know that you guys want me to teach on submission of wives to their husbands. So turn with me to Ephesians 5. Now, a lot of folks, when they look at this text, I believe are, are unintentionally maybe uh, misinterpreting this, but if you'll look at Ephesians 5.22, he says, wives submit to your own husbands. And then you'll look at... Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents. And 6, 5, this is page 2272, by the way. Uh, Ephesians 6, 5, he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. So he's obviously talking about the household, and he's talking about how we live out relationships where there is authority. Because he gives three relationships where there's a response that needs to be given to human authority. Now, he mentions husbands and wives first because there's no relationship like this one. Wives are not children and they're not slaves, even though some men treat them like such. 
These are partners who are usually smarter than we are and usually kinder than we are and usually know the Lord better than we do, to be honest with you. So if we're going to figure out who's the greater of the two genders, I don't think we want to get into that. But for some reason that God hints at in the Bible, but we sometimes don't fully understand, for some reason he has put a measure of authority in the office of husbandship. This doesn't mean that women are supposed to submit to all men. Not at all. It doesn't mean that there should not be a woman president. Not at all. It doesn't mean that the CEO of your business shouldn't be a woman. Not at all. It doesn't mean that women can't exercise authority in every other realm perfectly legitimately, and we should promote that uh, in terms of gender justice. But in marriage in particular, it looks like there's something there going on where there's some sort of authority that's to be submitted to in the office of husband. Now, what I want you to notice is to back up in these verses and see why. He says, submitting to one another out of, the word is fear. Reverence for Christ is fear, phobeo in the Greek. So there's a fear of God. There's a fear of Christ, and that's the reason that wives submit to their husbands. Believe me, gentlemen, they don't submit to you because it's easy or because you're handsome or because you're so smart. Or, you know, they, that's, a godly woman submits to you for one big reason. She fears the Lord. And that means that she can submit to a man who is actually her intellectual inferior, her spiritual inferior. So it has nothing to do with your superiority innately. It simply has to do there's something going on here about the fear of God that God has given us an order in creation that enables us to express our humility and our fear of Him. It's the same reason that we would, we would submit to civil authorities. And sometimes we don't very well. But we must submit to them. Why? For fear of God. That's the reason. And then when he says submitting to one another, some people, this is where I think the misinterpretation comes in, some would interpret that as what we call mutual submission that both the husband and the wife are mutually submitting to one another. And you'd have to carry that forward and say, I guess the children and the parents, they mutually submit, and the slaves and the masters mutually submit, which I think would be ridiculous. When Paul says submit to one another, he's saying, look, here's the household order with the authority that's in it. Now you all submit to one another where that submission is appropriate. And here's three cases where it is. Wives to husbands, children to parents, and slaves to masters. And be sure that wherever you have a submissive relationship, you play the drama out. And then you'll notice, of course, he not only gives instructions uh, to the inferior in the relationship, but to the superior. And you'll notice with husbands in particular, we are supposed to make it easy for our wives to submit because we would lay down our lives for them and not just at, you know, at the end of the day, not just at the big moment when we're being attacked and out of our own ego we protect her, no, every moment we show that we're deferring to them and that we're serving them, and that we're living for them as well as willing to die for them. And that is what a man who fears the Lord does. He serves her out of fear of the Lord, just like she submits out of fear of the Lord. So you can see how useful the fear of the Lord is. It's actually pervasive in every aspect of our Christian lives. And we're trying to leave it out. 
and just have a cozy little familiar relationship rather than a loving, intimate relationship with someone whom we highly revere. Now, notice then, uh, back to our main outline, God is pleased because, number one, He commends our motive, and secondly, He grants our request. Return to your tents, but you, Moses, stand right here with me, buddy. We're going to do some talking. So God is pleased that, that the people of God asked that we realize that God is great. We need a mediator out of the fear of the Lord. And out of the fear of the Lord, we need the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise God that we have an advocate at the right hand of the Father, that someone's gone ahead of us to present our request to Him and to represent us in perfect humanity before His throne of glory. We're profoundly grateful because we fear the Lord. We know we need the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we embrace Jesus Christ and love Him? Because, for heaven's sakes, for the fear of the Lord. And Christ has perfectly taken that up. And just as God says to Moses here, you all go on back to your tents. Moses, come here. God says to us, go back to your homes. Christ, I'm sending you to the world to be the perfect mediator for these people. Not to fail any longer. You're going to be the second Moses, the second Joshua, the second Adam. You're going to be the one who mediates between me and my people. And what a gift he has given us. Now lastly, let's look at verses 532 through 63. And here in these closing 10 minutes, I want us just to see how once we have this mediator who is, who, who is given us because of our proper reverence for the Lord, we need a mediator. Our mediator now calls us to a covenant life. He listens to the Father and then He gives us the Word. And He is completely vested with the Father's authority. When Moses says, you sent me into His presence and you said that I could come say to you what the Lord said and you said you'll hear it and do it. So now hear it and do it. And Jesus comes to us speaking on behalf of the Father. And, every, and, and the Father says of Him, when He baptizes Him, when, when Jesus is baptized and the Father sends the dove, the Holy Spirit upon Him, He says, This is My Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. The Father sets up His own Son as covenant mediator to whom we are to listen. And now Moses is saying to the Israelites, You must listen to Me. Here is what faithful covenant life is. It is to be loyal. What God wants from us is loyalty, the loyalty that comes out of love and fear of Him. First of all, loyal obedience to His commandments. You get that in verses 32 and 33, as well as 6-2. Now, I've taken these verses and chopped them up a little bit because you have two themes that are suffused through all these verses. The first one is that we are called to loyal obedience to His commandments. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. And notice how he says it in verse 32. Let's just look, first of all, 32. You shall not turn aside to the right or the left. That is, with no exceptions. If you go to your surgeon and say, you know, i got this really bad place right here on my side. I'm kind of concerned. He says, well, here, I'll, I'll uh, take it out. And it's no problem. And we, we use lights 90% of the time in the operating room. I mean, I'll be able to see about 90% of the time while I'm doing this surgery. <laughs> Forget that. I'm getting myself a new physician. Or, you know, 
What, what if the, the auto mechanic says, yeah, you can bring your car in. Uh, you know, about 80% of the time, uh, I actually, um, you know, examine the work of my mechanics to be sure they've done what they're supposed to do. You're not going back to that mechanic. Uh, hear what the Lord is saying. He's the Lord. So we're talking about consistent loyalty to him. Not to the right, not to the left. Don't take a vacation from the commandments of God. Go take a physical vacation. Don't take a vacation from the commandments of God. No exceptions. Number two, he says, in every way. That is, you shall walk in all the way that the Lord our God has commanded you. So don't treat the commandments like a smorgasbord. Hey, not bad. I think I've got about seven out of ten now. You know, I am at nine out of ten. Just one commandment. I'm still trying to decide whether I'll... Nope. It's either all the way or nothing. So in every way. And then when you come up to verse 6-2, you find that we do it with reverent fear. Back to this same theme. Moses says that you may fear the Lord your God. God wants your fear, your reverence, your awe, your amazement, your wonder. Fourthly, through the generations, gentlemen, you, this is verse 2, you and your son and your son's son. So it's not just your fear, it's the fear of your family. And gentlemen, the Lord has given you a place that he hasn't given anybody else. If you're head of family, you've got an opportunity nobody else has got. You are, in a sense, your family mediator. And you're the one who convenes your family to hear the word of God, to seek him in prayer. And if if Ephesians 5, if I've interpreted that correctly, if there's something there, some aspect of leadership that is uniquely given to the man. I think there is. Uh, I think men sometimes, especially in conservative churches, overdo it and become overbearing. But those in liberal churches don't recognize anything distinctive at all between the husband and the wife. And I believe there is something distinctive. And if I'm right, it would seem to me the number one place where you exercise your authority is to be sure that the word of God is heard in your family. And that the prayers to God are lifted up from your family. And if nobody else there is converted and nobody else knows how to pray, the father of that home knows how to pray. And he lifts up the concerns for that family before the Lord. And you take the mediatorial role in your own family, following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, who prayed for us before we even knew how to pray, and who prays for us right now when we fail to pray. You take up that that role. And you'll find that it's a concern for your son and your son's son, for your daughters and your daughter's daughters, and that you are seeking not only to fear the Lord yourself, but to encourage everybody else under your influence to fear the Lord. And then in verse 2, this is number 5 now, all the time, all the days of your life, for those of you who are older, watch out. Watch out. Solomon did not watch out. Here's the man who was the wisest man who ever lived up until his time. He and, he and Job would probably be in, in competition there to be the wisest man. The Bible says that Solomon was. And uh, Solomon, the wisest man, became a fool in so many ways at the end of his life because he was not careful. You keep this going all the way until you draw that last breath. You stay in the fear of the Lord. And follow him all the way. Now, uh, secondly, notice that our loyalty works not only in our obedience, but in our faith. That is, while we're obeying him out of fear for him, we're trusting him. 
Once again, this is not begrudging, untrusting, external obedience. We're obeying from the heart because we believe the rich and wondrous promises given to us in Christ. Notice what the promise is. Back to verse 33, that you may live. That's nice. That you, you may just simply have life. I mean real life. And God sent His Son that we may have life. And He says, Lord, here is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. There's life to know Him. Uh, John says in his gospel that that gospel was written that you may know that the Son of God, uh, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that you may have life in His name. That's the whole reason for the gospel, is that you might have life. Notice secondly, in verse 33, that it's a good life. It's not a miserable life. He says, and that it may go well with you. And later on in verse 6-3, he says that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey. That's a good life. You're multiplying, fulfilling the promise to Abraham that he will be a blessing. He'll be blessed and be a blessing to the nations, that he'll, he'll be a great nation. So the kingdom is multiplying. There's good life, and it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, that's what Jesus said he came to give us. He said, I came to give you life and life to the full. And one who fears the Lord knows this is true. We fear Him because we know that every other counterfeit is leading us to death because we fear the Lord and we know He's going to judge every counterfeit. And He's going to judge every man who follows the counterfeit. So out of the fear of the Lord, we're glad to get our hands off of that electrical wire that's going to fry us and get over here to life because we fear the Lord and we believe His promises. And then lastly, you'll notice in, in verse 33 that you may have long life, that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. And in verse 6-2, that your days may be long. Here's what the Lord says. Here's how long this life is. He says, for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life. Gentlemen, eternal life. The new heavens and the new earth, a land flowing with milk and honey for eternity. And one who fears the Lord believes that what he says is going to happen. And we will wait patiently for our inheritance because we fear the Lord and we believe He is truthful and that He is powerful and we believe that He is good. So we will fear Him not just externally, slavishly. We'll fear Him from the heart because we love Him and we are profoundly grateful for these promises that He gives us. Now there is covenant life, a life that fears the Lord, that demands a mediator to go in our place into His presence, and that mediator to give us the word of God that we may walk in the steps of the mediator and there by ourselves one day to be living in God's presence. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this rich and wonderful covenant that is revealed to us in Deuteronomy. We thank you for sending Moses for the people. What a gift he was to them. 
But Lord, most of all, we thank you for sending his successor, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Moses, who didn't just go up on the mount to receive the law, but he went on the Mount Calvary to lay down his own life in our place and to set us free from all the condemnation of the law that we may turn back to you in fear and reverence and amazement and in wonder and love and gratitude and embrace every word from your mouth. Help us, O Lord, to walk in the fear of the Lord even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.